We're halfway through LARB's summer member drive. This week, we're honored to partner with Plowshares during their 50th anniversary celebration. Become an annual member of the Los Angeles Review of Books today to receive all the perks of membership, including our LARB quarterly journal, our book club picks, selections from our publishing wing, our fabulous tote bags, and much more. As a bonus, receive 30% off a one-year print and ebook subscription to Plowshares. Join today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Again, that's lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, I spoke with author Nawaz Ahmed about his debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. Unfortunately, I had to miss your conversation, but Eric, will you tell me a little bit about the book? Yeah, so several things that are quite interesting about it. It is set in kind of Obama-era San Francisco, and the main character is okay. Seema, who is a lesbian, who kind of when she came out, she was exiled from her family in Chennai, India, and has kind of made a new life for herself. The name the of my grandmother. Oh, really? Is that true? Yeah, it is true. That's the name of my grandmother. She was not a, a lesbian in San Francisco, but okay, um, <laughs> maybe she was in another life. <laughs> Possibly. But this Seema um, is at the opening of the book is about to give birth to her son and uh, the whole story of kind of her mother and her sister with whom she needs to reconcile have come to be with her while she gives birth to the son and the whole story about their relationship, about Seema's long history is told from the perspective of the son who is about to be born. So it's lots of themes that we tend to really love, you know, the themes of diaspora, kind of nonlinear narrative, moving back and forth, craft, all of that stuff we get into in the conversation. Well, it sounds really good. I can't wait to listen to it. pleased to have Nawaz Ahmed on the line with us today, calling in from his home in Brooklyn. Nawaz holds an MFA from the University of Michigan Ann Arbor and is the recipient of several Hopwood Awards, as well as the McDowell, Yaddo, Jirasi, and VCCA residencies. He was also a Kundaman and Lambda Literary Fellow. He joins us today to talk about his debut novel, Radiant Fugitives, which was published earlier this month by Counterpoint Press. The novel loosely centers on Seema, a woman who has made a life for herself as a San Francisco-based campaign worker for progressive politicians after her Muslim family in Chennai, India, reject her for being a lesbian. As the book opens, Seema is dying just as she is about to give birth to a son, conceived with a fellow campaign worker to whom Seema was briefly married. Gathered around her are Seema's mother, Nafisa, and Tahra, Seema's deeply devout and jealous younger sister. Narrated by Seema's just-born son, Ishraq, Radiant Fugitives moves back and forth in time, from Chennai to London to the United States, charting the struggle of a family in the throes of rupture and reconciliation. Set against the backdrop of the Obama era, the novel meditates on what it means to belong, to be free, to love, to understand, and to forgive across countries, cultures, and desires. Welcome, Nawaz, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Eric, for having me here. I know that 
most all first novels, right, are their own long and difficult births, so to speak, to kind of pull an apt metaphor for this particular novel. Can you just tell us a little bit about where the inspiration for Radiant Fugitives came from? The first thing that came to me was actually a scene with three women, the two mm. sisters and their mother. And that came to me actually in one of those crazy moments, like when in half waking up, both the scene and actually a first line that came with the scene. Mm. And that was what started the novel. And this was in 2007. So I had the two women and their mother in the same room that looked like my apartment in San Francisco. And then the mystery was, what were they doing there and how did they come? I knew from that scene that there was some tension between the sisters and that one of them was pregnant, that the mother was dying. So those elements were there. And then over the next few years, I was trying to figure out how or what kind of novel would I write if this were going to be the novel I was working on. And that's when some of the other elements where Seema is a lesbian, because mm. I felt like I could only write a book at that point if it had a queer element in it. I did not want to commit to a novel that was not queer in its bones. I'm sure there were many different versions of this as you kind of like worked through the novel. But how did you settle on having Ishraq, Seema's kind of just born, but for most of the novel, yet unborn son as the kind of narrative perspective and consciousness? So it's from 2007 to like 2010 when I actually began the draft that feels like this current novel, Ishraq was in the narrator. And I was finding that the book was not getting written. I wanted that omniscience to be non-judgmental and more accepting. And I was running actually in around a pond during my MFA that it just struck me that I could solve all these problems if I had somebody who was new to the world uh, narrating the story, somebody who had not yet formed his prejudices and was not going to judge. The next day, I started the new draft with the baby narrating from the ER and that the whole book flowed after that. I want to talk about Seema in a little bit, but first I want to start with the two other central female characters. So starting with Nafisa, I think that Nafisa to me is probably the moral heart of the book. She doesn't agree with Seema's choices. She's not happy that Seema chose to leave home. She struggles with understanding Seema's sexuality. And I think most of that struggle, which is... I think familiar, actually, for most queer people, their parents struggle, even if they're accepting, is to kind of how to understand and imagine how her daughter is going to build a happy and fulfilling life. You know, given this kind of the way that Nafisa understands how to build that life is kind of taken out from underneath her. But she does try to understand. And I think that with Nafisa, her love for her daughter is what kind of endures all the other tests. So I wanted to kind of get a sense of where that character came from. As I said, the initial scene that I came up with had a dying mother. Work on trying to understand Nafisa myself. Like, mm. what would a mother go through? And what are the forces that are acting on her? Which is something I try to do with all my characters. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the themes of the book is really 
how are we formed by all the forces that constrain us and i think there's even a sentence in the book to that towards the end of the book mm-hmm. and nafisa is constrained she is dependent on her husband she has been brought up in this culture which as you say looks at happiness in a particular way that you have a family and maybe a job she's okay if the children have jobs right right there is this family life and this maybe a purpose which is secondary which she herself had she had a purpose which she thought she was going to pursue which is to study urdu and to sing ghazals and she gave up all that because for her then the family life seemed enough mm-hmm. and she was also not under the thumb but there was a very dominant patriarch in the family in the form right. of her husband and so there are these forces that do constrain nafisa and she struggles with it she is unfortunately not able to give up her husband or to walk out of the house like seema can seema has the courage of youth mm-hmm. well nafisa does not and she tries i think the hard thing to say about nafisa is that she tries and she does keep in contact with seema throughout those years even though her husband in fact defying her husband right because she feels that love is still very strong so she tries within the constraints of what is possible to her and that is how i see so many families i think at least in india struggling with issues like this you have these constraints and within that you try to maneuver as much as you can sometimes it is don't ask don't tell so you don't you pretend not to know anything but seema is very adamant about that she wants <laughs> to be completely accepted so that makes it harder for nafisa to maneuver now on the other hand you have tahra who is kind of the opposite of nafisa right so whereas nafisa seems to me all about flexibility within constraint tahra seems to be all about the constraint you know in fact she's kind of resentful it seems of anyone who does not adhere to the constraints or i guess what we might call the cultural norms that she adheres to especially her sister sima right who lives openly as a lesbian and is going to be a single mother additionally sima's decision to leave the family home even though we should point out she was exiled is also seen as rather reckless and even perhaps immoral so by contrast to her sister then tahra clings to her religious devotion as a way of securing a good life and this sort of is the implicit promise of the deeply devout no you know that if i follow these traditions and rules i can guarantee my happiness but i just kept thinking as i was reading that for all of her following the rules tahra doesn't seem that happy to me she seems to have a strained marriage and also to feel that she's failing both of her children while being away from them during this time that she's with her sister sima so i guess my question then is how are we to think about tahra i think it's easy to see her and i'm saying this as a reader from a white queer western perspective i think it's easy to see her as a kind of villain right that she's unaccepting of her sister's sexuality and her life choices that she's just kind of being unfair and unreasonable but at the same time it seems that something more complicated is going on there too So could you just talk a little bit about Tahra as a character and what you wanted to have her do in the novel? I would say that 
the constraints that you're talking about that Tahra is seeking are something that she does desire in her life and it gives her form and structure. I would kind of push back on saying that she's unhappy. I think within mm. those constraints and as long as her life is within that, she is happy. I mean, she finds peace in that. We should also not forget, I think, that as a child, I mean, Tahara does grow up with this romantic vision of life, which she gets from the Keatsian poetry, which is living for the moment and for oneself. And I think her acceptance of something else, of these constraints, comes later. It's not something she started out with. Mm. So she sees these other constraints as some kind of way in which one, it's different from what Seema did and she is seeking to differentiate herself from her sister. So she's very complicated, I think. But from point of view of someone who grew up in India, I don't see her as being inflexible or unhappy. I see her as finding the same way as Nafisa does, finding whatever things that she can take on on herself in order to build the life she wants. And she chooses, she makes some choices about it that are harder than somebody else might have made. But within those constraints, I think Seema finds her happiness. Of course, the problems come when those constraints collide with this other world which she seeks to keep out. The world of Seema, the world in America. And when those come, then she begins to find herself being threatened. But within those constraints, I think she's plenty happy. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Nawaz Ahmed, author of Radiant Fugitives. We'll return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Rivka Galchin on the line with us today. Her new novel is called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Rivka, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend Intimacies by Katie Kinamura. Tell me more about the book. The book is set in The Hague, and the main character, that, who's sort of the speaker, is a translator at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. And, you know, she's just moved there, so she has this sort of actually amazingly perceptive eye of the outsider for, for everything that's going on around her. But she's also, interestingly, kind of silent, passive person, both by profession and sort of, that sort of bleeds into other elements of her life. So there comes this moment when she is the translator for a kind of oddly charismatic, basically criminal, <laughs> um, you know, who's sort of led terrible atrocities. And so she sort of documents the sense of all the crimes that basically never get punished. They're sort of like happening on every level in the book, like almost everything that someone does wrong ends up costing them nothing. And I feel the book is also really good on on what I feel is like has to be acknowledged as the strange charisma of evil, the way that those who perpetrate violence 
because they have a certain kind of power, that there's a strange, horrible charisma about that. And the book is very honest about that dynamic, especially as between women and men. That sounds really great. I'm excited to read it. I'm actually going to read it soon. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes. So the book is Intimacies by Katie Kitamura. Great. Thank you so much, Rivka. We've been talking to Rivka Galchin. Her new novel is called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch. Now, back to our conversation with Nawaz Ahmed, author of Radiant Fugitives. You know, Seema, it goes without saying, like all of these other characters as well, is incredibly complicated. She, you know, as a queer person, I can understand her struggle to kind of live her truth and then live in a way that provides her with freedom. But, you know, on the other hand, she does kind of admit that she, towards the end of the novel, she admits that she manipulates people and even potentially uses friends and family in kind of extractive ways. And she's also kind of what she wants seems to be a bit of a moving target. You know, so she is a lesbian, but then she does also have this relationship with Bill, who's the father of her son. And then she has a new relationship with a younger woman. So it seems like Seema's search for happiness is one that is ongoing. So could you just talk a little bit about what happiness means to Seema and what you kind of wanted to to make people see in her character? Yeah. Seema, I think, and maybe a lot of gay queer people, and maybe I'm speaking for myself and not for others, we've had to hide what we wanted for many years of our lives. And Seema had to, she had to present this other persona in order to get what she wanted, which is to be liked and to be loved. And that, I think, is what Seema has grown up getting used to. That in order to be this person who's admired and uh, who's liked by all, which is how she grows up, She's she grows up as with this uh, anarchy figure in her mind where she has all these adorers, her father loves her, she's uh, admired at school, her sister admires her. So she has all these things that she feels she like she needs to live up to. Mm-hmm. And there's this other person, this other love that she cannot express or cannot. And the minute she does it, which is she comes out, when she comes out, her father exiles her. Mm -hmm. So there is a lesson, I think, that Seema learns that show your true self and you are likely to be exiled. Show what you really want. Show your vulnerabilities and then you are going to pay for it. So she presents this whole sense of of a much stronger character than she is. I think Tara of the two is the stronger one. Seema is is actually pretty vulnerable, but she presents herself as being very strong. And mm. she presents herself in a way in which she, in almost, you know, defiance. So she does things that may be out of defiance rather than out of principle. Mm. Her marriage to Bill 
is not completely out of love. I mean, there is definitely some attraction there that she explores, but it also becomes a way of exerting her will. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do this. And Bill is attractive to Seema because then she becomes part of a bigger struggle and not just her own personal struggle. I see. Yes. So, so Seema, I think, is trying to build herself up as this bigger-than-life person so that she can feel like she has control over her life. And being an immigrant, being exiled from her family, trying to produce a new life for herself when she was at the center of the universe of her family in India, I think, Mm -hmm. is the trauma that she carries. And she tries to taper it up in so many different ways. And some of it is by using other people to make herself feel better. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, and it's um, you know it, it, it's interesting to me as I, as I was reading through you know there's the character of Sima's friend Fiaz, um, whom she kind of brings in because he's also Indian, also you know Muslim, and it he's a source of comfort for Tahra and Nafisa, even though they don't totally understand that Fiaz is gay. Right. And and that character actually, I think, comes across as in, in some ways the most, I get well adjusted of all of them. Though I wonder sometimes if that's only because we see snatches of his experience, not the whole thing. But he seems to kind of achieve a balance between two worlds that all the other characters really struggle with. So he keeps as he uh, describes it to Tahra in one particularly intense scene uh, as being he keeps his own way of being Muslim. Right, so he he's Muslim and gay, which Tahara denies. Like that, that can't actually be the case. And he says, "No, this this is the the way that I am. We I practice the way that I feel." And he also appears to have a supportive mother who knows that he has a partner, that he's gay, and and supports that. And these are things that really seem to escape Sima. So I'm wondering if, in some ways, is he an alternative for her? A kind of a way that things might have been, even if they could not actually have been that way for her. I did think of Fiaz as a kind of a possible mirror, yes. And I think one of the main two things distinguish him from Seema. One, he grows up in the U.S. And two, he does have a supportive mother and who does not, um, who still practices Islam. Mm -hmm for herself and but is still accepting of her son and that is completely possible too i mean it's not uh i i didn't make that up there is that is definitely a possibility for muslims as well uh, when we think of faith as something personal and mm-hmm. not completely dictated um and so he has these advantages that Seema does not have. And so definitely, I think Seema's, the way Seema's life unfolds could have been different had she had a different outcome. In fact, Ishraq actually points that out. Ishraq, that's the baby, points Mm -hmm. that out in that scene where he talks about the speech that uh, Seema gives when she, she comes out. She gives a speech about the love being valued 
to her father at the end of that scene where he rejects her and he talks about how her life could have been different had that happened had and, and so um i did not want to actually portray a particular kind of islam in the book mm-hmm. or uh, and for me it was important to put out all these other possibilities of how religion and sexuality and faith can interplay and of course the story does not concentrate on fiaz it does on sima because that's where the drama is right right exactly <laughs> um i also speaking of of drama you know the kind of the the backdrop for the whole novel is this uh it's very early Obama era, you know, obviously set in San Francisco. You have um, Seema is working at the time on, or at the very beginning, she's working on Kamala Harris's senatorial campaign. Um, you know, at, at some point in the book, Obama is elected and gives the speech at Grant Park in Chicago. Um, and so this is, what I what I love about that backdrop is that it's a time, as you address in the novel, it's a time of hope for many Americans, but it's also a time when that hope is tempered with a considerable m- amount of anxiety specifically for muslim americans and for queer americans right so can you talk a little bit about what that time period meant for you and kind of how you were setting it up as this complicated background in radiant fugitives where it stands in for all these questions about b- who belongs and who doesn't belong and kind of where reconciliation and forgiveness might be headed, or if we're headed, as it seems like history has shown us, in a somewhat radically different direction. I did start thinking about this novel as a novel from 2008 to 2010 before I started writing it. So that was the time when Obama had just been elected and there was hope. And there was also a lot of rhetoric about it being post-ratio, like we've entered this new era. And what I was seeing on the ground in ways that impacted me, there was a lot of anxiety. In fact, not only anxiety, it felt like a dangerous time. Mm-hmm. There were um, so much um, anti-Muslim sentiment going around. We had the Ground Zero mosque uh, protests that were mm-hmm. started in New York and they were like spreading throughout the country. There was arson in Texas at a mosque. So so that was something that, and there was also this thing that I mentioned in the novel, my voice, my faith PSA that had, that Muslims were trying to fight back with that says, I am an American, I live here, I don't be afraid of me. And just to see that and to feel like you had to put something like that out. Don't mm-hmm. fear me. I'm an American. My faith does not is not going to harm you. Made me feel a lot like an outsider, and not really an outsider, like somebody who has to um, defend my choices or my faith or how I look. Mm-hmm. And I think I found that very triggering around that time. And then, of course, there was the whole uh, gay marriage uh, fight as well, where California had just in 2008 passed Prop 8 and added a constitutional ban 
and it wasn't clear what was going to happen there. There were so many states racing yeah. to add the ban. So personally, I felt like affected by both these things. And it did not seem like that was just myself. It felt like those struggles were actually struggles. So many communities and so many other divisions in the country were having to deal with. Mm. And not only that, I also, I think, wanted to see in a way the other side which I know I did not address directly. There is, after all, to both the gay marriage and the Islamophobia thing, there's an opposition. But I also wanted to, in a way, try to get a handle on what that looks like. Mm. And that is why I think it was important for me to put Islamophobia against homophobia in this novel in a way because Seema uh, Tahara feels set upon for her Muslim faith but she also judges Seema right and so you have this very complex position where she's both victim and as well as being maybe a proper proponent of her own form of violence and I wanted that to be present in the book because we have, I did not want an unnamed uh, or even a character to represent that. It, I wanted that to be embodied within the same family itself where you had these two different kinds of uh, energies that the country itself has mm. where you have. And, and I wanted to explore that not by, say, exploring a white person, character who is Islamophobic, but to have, like, what kind of, uh, what kind of violence is there within Tahara's feelings herself? Mm. And how do we see that in other people? And can we condone that? In, if we condone that in Tahara, then how do we condone that or not condone that in the others who oppose us or not. Yeah. And so, so I see that as, and that's why I wanted a non-judgmental narrator so that he doesn't judge Tahara and just reports it. These, we are humans and we right. have these highly conflicting desires. Some of them are not very nice or not very good, but we still have them. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to work on in the novel, this this place where we may not be very happy ourselves with, with the values we hold, or we don't know what to do with those values, or we think that those values are unchangeable. Like Nafisa says of her children, she feels like both Tahara and Seema feel like their values are not changeable. And then the last thing that I wanted to ask you, and just a spoiler alert for listeners, if you don't want to hear about the very end of the book, then just skip forward to the end of this episode. So I want to talk about how it ends. There are juxtaposed with one another. So Ishraq, we, find, we know from the very beginning of the novel that Seema is dying as she gives birth to her son. Um, we also know that Nafisa is 
in the process of dying. And then at the very end of the book, we find out that Ishraq, who is the person whose narrative consciousness has carried us through the entire plot, also died in the in that moment. But then you you juxtapose the heaviness of that revelation with, that there will be no life to come, right? Suddenly all the like, my mother could be, my mother to be becomes, you know, the mother who won't be, the mother who can't be. But then you juxtapose that with two different images. One is um, Tahara's children who look at a uh, the older brother sets up for his younger sister a, a, a water sprinkler on a lawn and she's able to see a rainbow that's generated by the sun shining behind the sprinkling water. And then the other one is uh, Ishraq kind of brings us out of the hospital where he and his mother have died to see these kind of figures that he describes specifically as not angels, but they're more like spirits kind of coming up and moving out of the fog in San Francisco. So they're two really beautiful, um, I'm even getting a little choked up as I talk about them right now, but they're two very beautiful images of endurance, hope, and optimism. But at the same time, you've killed off the very character that we like, you know, we're, we're getting so close to throughout the book. So can I just um, ask you a little bit about kind of why you decided to close the book the way that you did? This is tough to talk about <laughs> just because, um, but you have given a spoiler alert. What I was doing with the narrator, I think, is developing him in, and his voice from the beginning of the novel towards a more kind of a poetic, prophetic voice. Okay. There's this scene in Naim that, that Naimula talks about, the grandfather talks about, where he gives this lecture about what, pretty much about what is life. And he talks about not knowing and being okay with not knowing and that's the best that we can do. And that's the trajectory I wanted for Ishra. Okay. That he is moving towards this place where he has given some half-truths, uh, some as much as he knows about life. And that's as much as he can give. Anything more would not be something that he can give. And so his death, in a sense, is moving to that place where he says, this is all I know. Okay. This is all I know, and the rest you have to, you the living have to figure it out. And this is as much as I can guide you. So the hope is not that there's a loss of hope or death, but there's the hope that he presents that you have all this, you have all the things I know, and I leave you with these two beautiful images for you to construct on your own. And that's as much as anyone can provide as any prophet can provide this kind of hope, which is just a half vision. And that's where I wanted to leave the book. That's beautiful. And that's a perfect place to end. Uh, Nawaz, thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Nawaz Ahmed, author of Radiant Fugitives. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please 
Rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.